I'm going to invite those who are comfortable to find a place at a table. We're going to be more relational and experience uh, our senses, and I've got some sensory stuff. So if you're comfortable, find a place at a table. It's okay if you're uncomfortable, (laughs) given the season we're in, but if you are, take a place at the table. Those of you at home, I will just ask that you get ready some uh, morsel of goodness to consume. So uh, needn't be extravagant, but have something on hand that you can taste. Well, I feel like there's a trend I've noticed recently of um, people who want to leave the church but don't want to leave Jesus. I, I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> I think it's really hard, and I understand people wanting to leave the church because of craziness in certain corners, but the, the other half of church focuses quite a bit on relationships, and that our faith, that Christianity is experienced in relationship. It's not generally something you do alone. You know, God is in relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the faith that we inherit is a relational one. And by nature of the fact that we can't live out our faith without being in community with others makes it messy. Just because people are messy. You know, even if there were just two people in the church, it would be messy. (laughs) Who were, you know, very much alike and aligned on a lot of things. It would still be messy. If you want to experience Christianity without relationship with other people, then I don't know that you can have Jesus involved because Jesus draws messy people. Messy people are the type of people that Jesus hangs out with and even seeks out. And so um, if you want to experience Jesus without messy people, then you can't. You, You have to go to a church without Jesus where all the cool people hang out. <laughs> I'm sure there are places like that that may even say we're a church, but like we don't have Jesus because Jesus attracts mess, and we don't like mess. So relationship, that's foundational to how we experience Christ, how we follow the faith. It means we are rubbing shoulders with awful people. That's no excuse for arrogance in the church. That's no, uh, I'm not giving a pass to, to sin in the church. I'm just acknowledging the reality that if a faith is relational, particularly connecting to people with problems, which Christianity is, a bunch of people with problems, um, then you're just not going to experience the fullness of faith without rubbing up in the church with messy people. So this journey we've been on with a book called The Other Half of Church has focused mainly on relationship and how that plays out. 
There's a chapter on joy, particularly the joy of being in relationship with others in the church. This has said love, this kind of love that covers over a multitude of sins, like love that transcends the mess of a person's life. That's not to avoid healthy correction, because that's also part of this book. Like being in relationship with messy people calls us to address sin. You can't have communion without recognizing that you're at odds and need to sort out, and maybe it's the other person, so you need, like, that is part of the faith. Healthy correction. Group identity. There are times I really would like to separate myself from the group identity of y'all, or the sort of bigger church. But there's a way in which, like a messy family, I just have the same last name as you all. Um, And I just can't sort of change my name if I want to stay in the family. And I want to stay in the family. So group identity was part of it, and then narcissism like how to root out arrogance um, in ourselves and particularly people in leadership in the church. So um, the relational aspect of faith, like uh, Jesus didn't leave us with a creed, like the Apostles' Creed. He left us with a meal around a table. That's what communion was. Like, I want you to gather. I want you to forgive one another. And then I want you to remember my death and resurrection. And by the way, it's going to be a meal. It's not going to be sort of all all repeating at once something. So uh, that kind of picture of Christianity in relationship to others is what we're stuck with. Thank you, other half of church, for bringing those things out. There is an aspect of church and of Christianity that I feel like they... Uh, authors might have introduced. So this being the last uh, in the series, I thought, well, I'll do that. The embodied aspect of faith. The fact that we uh, inhabit bodies on earth, I believe, is central to being a Christian. Uh, You can't think your way into Christianity. You, you act your way into Christianity. It is Im- embodied. It's important that Jesus was raised bodily, like that he had a body. Yes, we, for sure, we are spirit. But when Jesus was raised from the dead with a body, he was breaking this platonic dualism, like, oh, the the earth and the physical world and the bodies, those are all the imperfect bad. And ideas and spirit, those are the pure things. That was prevalent, and I think is prevalent today. We tend to you know, hold philosophies and ideas in this sort of higher space and feel like, oh yeah, the mess of having a body and being on earth, like that's imperfect. But Jesus was raised bodily. I don't believe you can experience Christianity in your head. I don't think you can think Christian. I think you got to be one. In fact, the early church 
wasn't called uh, followers of a school of thought. They were called followers of a way of life. Oh, they are the people of this way, which includes living differently than those around you. It is uh, an embodied practice. Christianity is an embodied practice. Um, It's not, and I know this is going to sound weird, Christianity is not primarily a theology. It's a way of life. I, I consider those people in Scripture who had bad theology, or incorrect theology, like the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, right? There's a story of this Samaritan person who's living out love your neighbor as yourself more than the people with the right theology, the priest and the Levite. So here's praxis of the faith being held up by Jesus over right thinking. Um, I th- Probably both. It's good to have good theology and good practice. But we see in Scripture people like the Magi, or likely Zoro- Zoroastrians, living out a faith embodied by going and pursuing this king in ways that the teachers of the law were not pursuing and going to Bethlehem and trying to find the Christ. It was a bunch of people with bad theology but good action. So, interesting. You know, another incident that happened, this this wasn't a parable. There were ten people with leprosy. They were their own little colony. And they hear Jesus coming, and Jesus heals the whole colony. And the only one that comes back to in gratitude is a Samaritan. A person, the Samaritans didn't embrace all of the Hebrew scriptures that the Jews did, and their place of worship, a bunch of other things were like not lining up. And Jesus points out to the woman at the well, yet yeah, I don't think you've got it quite right. Uh, They had a few things, but they didn't have complete theology. I mean, which of us do? Here are people who are embodying the faith in ways that Jesus is calling out. This is enfleshed faith right here. There's this centurion, okay, army officer of the oppressor. Probably uncircumcised, uh, bacon-eating barbarian. Now, he loves the Jews, and there's something about their uh, way that he's drawn to, but when uh, his daughter falls sick, he stops Jesus. Like, I know I'm around Jews all the time. I know you can't come into my house. That's not necessary, because you don't need to be physically present to heal my daughter. And Jesus says about this Roman centurion, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. I don't know how the disciples felt about that, but like this guy, he gets it. Y'all, I don't see, not at the level that this guy is expressing and experiencing. So you get this motley crew of um, theological misfits that Jesus holds up, embraces. All that to say, 
I think it's important how we live. Great to have good thinking, good philosophy, good theology. Better to live it in your bodies, to enflesh the faith, than just think of the faith. Um, so, I'm going to bring us into our bodies within the context of our faith. That's why I have you sitting at tables, and I, I'd like for us to, and this table may be a bit big, maybe one of you wants to come to another table just because I've arranged the food thusly. So I've got a few things, um, and I want us to experience taste and smell. Oh, thank you, God, for taste and smell. Aren't taste buds glorious? I mean, how extravagant. I don't know how many taste buds like a bird has, but like in comparison, there is something transcendent about like God, for evolutionary sake or for the survival of the species, we don't need this many taste buds. There are plenty of creatures with very few taste buds who manage to live. Like I know there's an incentive to eating, but there is something that connects to your spirit when you eat, just the flavor of something and the feel of it in your mouth. Such an amazing experience. I want us to become present to taste buds, the feel of something in your mouth, the smell of something. So there's just basic, sharp cheddar. There is Monterey Jack. And there are cherries. Thank you, Michigan, or other places where cherries are grown, even here, I suppose. Take a moment. Become present to taste buds and the sensitivities of the mouth. Smell something. Bite into the cherry and smell it. I'm going to give you a moment just to celebrate taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You at home, go ahead, indulge a little bit, but give yourself space to really taste. Experience the flavor. And yes, the palate cleanser of water. I think all the food shows are a testament to just how beautiful taste buds are. Indulge, taste, smell. Talk a little bit at your tables about what you're experiencing as you taste or become present to taste. Things that you're noticing about taste. And... Uh, those who aren't at tables, feel free to walk up and grab a cherry from someone's table if you like. There are some extra plates if 
Taste is sacred. It's spiritual. Like the tongue bone's connected to the spirit bone, I'm pretty sure. Like the spirit picks up on those vibrations. Just about every food show is holy. I think taste buds are um, as much proof of God's existence as just about anything. Like how lavish to give us this joy of eating and tasting. Could have been like we could have been made solar. We just take in energy from the sun or whatever, you know, too bad for those who live in Seattle. But like there are other ways that we could have been designed. That we were designed to take in nutrients in our mouths and then to be able to have our hearts transcend this earth as you have a little bit of, it's just a bit of cow's milk that's been swirled about a little bit, but there's something so beautiful. We're in relationship to our food. We're in relationship to the things <coughs> that give us food. I mean, think, with trees or most plants, they breathe out oxygen and breathe in carbon dioxide. We breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. Did I say that right? Like there's this almost symbiotic relationship with plants. Like we live in relationship to food. And that Jesus says, I want you to have bread and wine every time you remember me. Like it requires human interaction to turn wheat into flour, into bread, and to ferment grapes and turn like we have this relationship to food that Jesus celebrates and invites us into. We our our, our taste matters to God. Food matters to God. It is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Everything is sacred because all things were made by him and for him. Think of that at every meal. At least three times a day, we have to stop to recognize our dependence on food and our enjoyment of food and our celebration of food. Let's do that. Let's live lives celebrating taste buds celebrating our relatedness to food. Every time you eat, become spiritual. Become present to taste buds and smell buds or whatever it is that contributes to flavor. Let's talk about hearing. And I realize when you're dealing with senses that that we live in a world where not everybody has all the senses. So my sister, born blind, and her sister-in-law, uh, deaf. So I realized that um, people with sensory deprivations also find ways to work around those things and celebrate life. So... Um, you know, even as we touch on each of these senses, let's recognize that not everyone possesses all of them. Let's celebrate the ones that we do have and recognize their holiness. Okay, hearing. 
I'm going to play three different uh, tracks of music, maybe not the whole thing. And I just want you to think about how the ear bone is connected to the emotion bone. How do these sounds make you feel? What do they do to you? Let's just listen. We can also celebrate the ambient noise of children. Hallelujah. This is Vivaldi Winter by the Arctic Philharmonic Chamber Orchestra. Talk at your tables a little bit about how you're experiencing this music, what you're feeling. stuff to you doesn't it? it's just it's just this little bone hitting on a drum that's all it is but it it touches your soul I mean I just get chills let's listen to another piece of music and see what this does to you this become present to your feelings <laughs> Thank you. 
my perspective here, I see feet tapping under tables. Talk a little bit about what you're experiencing with this. This is uh, Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, 
to start with, let's just become aware of our bodies, like the feel of your spirit inhabiting this earth suit that you're wearing and become aware of the body that you feel on your spirit or around your spirit. You know, find a comfortable spot, maybe both feet on the floor, but and start with your eyebrows. I don't know. Those are kind of the first things I can feel. Like, are they furrowed? Find sometimes, oh, why are my eyebrows just furrowed? Relax your eyebrows. How about your jaw and your tongue and your lips? Just can you feel those things? You can choose to relax those things. Shoulder and neck, oh yeah, that's where a lot of us carry the burdens of life. Sometimes you're able to control sort of relaxing them, and sometimes they're just bound up. You need someone to sort of massage your shoulders, but relax your shoulders, your neck, your lower back, your stomach, your arm, like your torso. Feel it. What Your body speaks to your spirit. Your body is telling you something, always. You just have to be still and listen to what your body is telling you. Often your body is communicating something about your emotions or something about your spirit, and it shows up in your body. You know, hips, how you're seated, like you're being held in place. Can you feel that? Can you feel gravity? Aren't you glad that we're just not aimlessly floating about, bumping our heads on the ceiling and running into one, like... You're grounded. Feel that. Enjoy that. Legs, calves, toes. Like you have a body. I know we're both body and spirit. But the two are woven together in a way that you can't have one without the other. At a certain time, our spirits will leave our bodies. We're told we'll be resurrected in some form, like Jesus. Likely there's a physicality to our resurrected selves. I have no idea how that works. I'm not an eschatological expert, but I just know our bodies are gifts and they are important. And the gift of touch Take a moment now and just walk around, greet one another. If you're uncomfortable shaking hands, hold out your fist, bump fists. And be present to how it feels, just to touch. There's a guy who uh, used to go to our church, Dow Saunders, did his entire master's thesis on the critical nature of touch in Christianity and in the church. That was his master's thesis. All about touch, how it happens, how it's needed as part of our faith. I think he gives, you know, it's interesting, he started this before the pandemic. And then he had to rewrite it during the pandemic, or it added something. And of course he deals with inappropriate touch and how that has happened within the church. But most of it is focused on how our faith requires and invites this sort of connection with one another. Go fist bump around the room, 
look at people and say peace or whatever, but move about. Indulge the senses. Peace be with you. You can move back to your places. Janine and I weren't able to make it, but I think a lot of these things were present in the dance night on Friday. There's touch, there's music. You know, there is an embodied faith in our dancing. Dance is sacred. All right, time to talk about sight. Isn't it great that you can look at a sunset or sunrise and it does something in here? Kind of like tasting, like all the senses, like the eye bones connected to the soul bone as well. Like there's just something about when when you encounter something beautiful, either in nature or in something that people have made, it stirs you. I'm going to introduce some of you to a practice called Visio Divina. Maybe you've done Lectio Divina. You know, it's like you're listening generally to a scripture and you listen to it three times and you ask, you invite God to speak to you out of scripture. Let's try Visio Divina. God, how do you want to speak to me specifically, intimately, personally about an image? So I have a piece of artwork called The Visitation. Elizabeth and Mary may not be able to read. The old man holding the sign says his name is John. You can guess who that is. So take a moment and just ask God, what do you have to say to me? And be attentive to any portion of the picture or character in the picture that you have a sense, your attention's being drawn to this section. Why is that? Take a moment. Invite God to speak to you through the visitation.
Feel free to come up if there are things you want to examine more closely. It's also on the screen in the back. I think you can see a bit more of it on uh, the wall here. Okay, take a moment now and talk to your neighbor as you've been quiet and meditating on that picture. Talk to your neighbor and maybe uh, let them know what's speaking to you out of this. Is God speaking? It's okay if you feel like nah, I've not really had enough time, but my attention was drawn to this. Maybe now that your attention's been drawn to a particular area for those who have, just take a moment and ask God why. Why are you highlighting this? It may not come to you right away. Maybe later today. Why, why that aspect of this picture, God? What are you saying to me? All right, for you contemplative introverts, it's not been nearly enough time. For some of you extroverts, you've been painfully waiting to say what it is that you're seeing. Take a moment now and share at your tables. What are you seeing? Is God speaking to you? What are you noticing about the picture? It can be purely observational. doesn't have to have a spiritual connotation. It's like, very interesting. John's like this, and Jesus is like this, and, you know, it's, what are you seeing?
All right, I'm going to wrap us up here. If there were one saying that uh, held the Jewish people together, probably be Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And during what we call the Hellenistic period, that is sort of a period of time where Greek thinking sort of captured the Roman world and beyond, mind is added, you know, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But in Deuteronomy, heart, soul, strength. It's because uh, heart in Jewish thought captured both thinking and feeling. So it was it was both those things. Soul, like your person, your being, your breath, and strength, your body. Center of the Jewish world, recognizing the embodiment of our relationship with God. We love God with our bodies and with our thinking and with our feeling and uh, with all who we are. And so it was a full embodied way of interacting with God. The, the most ancient stories about Creator come out of the Jewish tribe, Jewish nation set of tribes, and it was fully embodied. Heart, soul, strength. That's how we encounter God. That's how we love God. That's how we love one another. That's how we experience Christianity. It has all those things, and we tend to be very much uh, Christians in our heads. I don't think you can be a Christian in your head. <laughs> I think you've got to be a Christian in your body and in your emotions and in the way that you interact with people. Like Christianity has that. That's the other half of church. Half of church that we're really good at is thinking and theologizing and philosophizing. The other half of church that we're not so good at is the relating, is the embodied, is the physicality of our faith. So that's the series on the other half of church. We're whole beings. Let's experience our faith through our body and emotions as well as our mind. Let's recognize the sacredness of the senses. Every time you eat or step, I know it's it's impossible to be ever conscious of how God gave us these bodies and how glorious it is to take a bite. Slow down. Your faith is connected to your eating and drinking and dancing and listening to music and speaking and shaking hands and hugging people like all of it is sacred and that's how we experience God and that's how we allow God to speak through us as we look at people as we interact with people 
especially people who aren't in the church, recognize God has given them bodies that are sacred too. They experience the sacred every day, perhaps without knowing it. Everything is holy that's been touched by God, and God has touched everything.